Welcome. We are almost done this semester before our December break in theological equipping class. We will always have sermons all the time, 52 weeks a year, even 53, because we do something on, uh, uh, on Christmas Eve, but we will take a break from this class in uh, December. Uh, but we have three lessons left, me, Jeff, and Tim, but that, not, not necessarily in that order, except for the first one. That one's kind of obvious uh, today. Uh, and we've got some important things coming up. Now, let me tell you what we're going to be talking about today. So this semester, we have spent time really going over what we call the application of redemption. So last semester, we talked about Christ and how He earned our salvation. We talked about atonement. We talked about His perfect life, etc. This semester, we've been talking about how we get that stuff how we get the good stuff that Christ has purchased, and we call that the application of redemption. Next semester, we're going to finish that up, uh, and then I think we're going to move into the doctrine of the church. We're going to start talking about ecclesiology. What is the church? How should a church be run? Uh, what is baptism? What is communion? All those kind of things. Uh, but we've got three more lessons uh, this semester, and uh, the one that we're going over today is actually going to be, I think, kind of a, a breath of fresh air uh, because it's not nearly as technical as some of these. So sometimes this semester we've had things like, you know, two lessons on the history of predestination, and it can get a little heady. The, the lesson today is actually going to be really encouraging, I hope, and also very, very easy to understand, very practical. Uh, we want to give you the full range of Scripture. Sometimes when Scripture speaks loftily, we will speak loftily. Other times when it speaks uh, in a very practical way, we'll do that as well. And so the lesson today is actually going to be very uh, practical, but one of the things that I've found is for some reason, the simpler something is, theologically, the harder it is to apply, Right? So we know God loves us. That's easy. Actually living that and believing that and walking in that is much more difficult. And so don't assume that just because this is easy to understand, therefore you fully grasped it, okay? But let's talk about our union with Christ, okay? Let me give you a definition here. This is the definition on your handout. This comes from uh, Wayne Grudem. Union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers in Christ through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation, Okay? Every benefit of salvation. Let me explain it this way. Imagine for a second that you're just you. You're you by yourself. Can you fly? Raise your hand in here if you can fly. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Oh, okay, a few, funny, a few people up to funny business. Okay, you can't fly. But if you are in an airplane, you can fly. Does that make sense? You can't in and of yourself, but by being put into something that is not you, you now have this blessing and this benefit, or if you're me, it's a curse, of being in an airplane and being able to fly. Okay? Or imagine for a second that you want to go way deep down into the ocean. You want to go down into the Mariana Trench. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. I'm not really a, uh, know, anybody, know anything about the ocean. But you want to go really deep in the ocean. You can't go very deep just by yourself. You will get crushed because of the pressure. Watch any submarine movie you've ever seen. They'll always have something in the first scene where they're like, that pressure could crush a man. And then all of a sudden you see like a loose bolt in the submarine and you're like, I know where this is going. But if you're in a submarine that's well constructed, you can go deep. Notice that you're in something that is outside of you. It's not you, but you're being put into that thing, and therefore you now have benefits and privileges and abilities that you didn't have before, okay? If you are in Japan, you're a citizen of Japan, you cannot own a handgun. That's illegal in Japan. But if you are in the United States, you can own a handgun, okay? You're in something that allows you to have certain privileges and these kind of things, which typically would be foreign to you. Okay? So what we're going to be talking about with our union of Christ is this, that when you are in Christ, every blessing that you have, every benefit of the Christian life, everything in your relationship to God, everything with forgiveness of sins, every good possible thing you have as a Christian, you do not have by yourself. You only have because you are in Christ. In the same way that you cannot fly, but you can fly if you're in a plane, 
You cannot be righteous. You cannot be forgiven. You cannot be loved by God except by being in Christ. And so your union with Christ is tremendously important, okay? And understanding that's tremendously important. Now, I'll say it another way. Uh, There are, uh, so every few years, uh, a New Testament scholar comes out with a book where they're trying to support the central theme of the New Testament. So some will say the central theme of the New Testament is the deity of Christ. The central theme of the New Testament is the kingdom of God. The central theme of the New Testament is justification by faith. And they'll try to pick one particular thing that they think is the most important thing talked about in the New Testament. Now, I don't think you can do that. I think there are a bunch of them. I think any system that just says it's mainly just this one thing end up kind of smushing in the pieces into that system that don't necessarily fit. But one of the things at least the Bible talks about a lot is this idea that we are in Christ. The Apostle Paul will use the phrase in Christo, in Christ, over and over and over and over and over again. And some of the texts that we're going to be looking at today, it's just an example. I didn't want to put all of them in there because it would have just been pages and pages and pages. So the Apostle Paul sees you as belonging to someone, i.e. Christ, and it's only by your union with him that you have any benefit of salvation, any blessing, any of those kind of things, okay? Now, when we talk about union with Christ, here's really what this means. That's kind of a fancy theological term simply to talk about this, your identity. When we talk about your union with Christ, the main thing we're talking about is your identity. Who are you? Your identity and how you see yourself will affect everything else you do, okay? If you see yourself as beautiful, it will change the way you dress, it will change the way you act, it will change the way you interact with people. If you see yourself, your identity as someone who's rich, it'll change the way that you buy things, it'll change with who, you know, change about who your friends are and these kind of things. Whatever, however you see yourself will affect your day-to-day life because you will act out of what you think that you are. You with me? So what people will do is they will try to find their identity in something. There is no not finding your identity in anything. Mankind is made to find their identity in Christ. And so if you don't find it in Christ, you will find it in something else, okay? And the same way that mankind is naturally a worshiper, you don't have to teach mankind to worship. Mankind naturally worships. The problem is that we worship the wrong thing. In the same way, mankind naturally looks for identity. We want to know where we find our value. We want to know who we are. We want to know what we should be doing. And if we don't find it in Christ, we'll find it in something else. And so here's my question for you. Where other than Christ, are you finding your identity, okay? Is your primary identity found in your job? What do you tell people when they first meet you? If you get five minutes to chat with a new person, what do you typically tell that person? Because a lot of times that will show and kind of show your cards of where you find your identity. Is your primary identity found in your job? That's your main thing? You see people that do that. So I've got a buddy who uh, uh, was a Navy SEAL, And right after he got out of the SEAL teams, he had to just go work a regular job and went through a huge depression because his identity was gone. That's who he was. He's used to jumping out of airplanes in the middle of the night and shooting people, and then all of a sudden you got to go work for Office Depot, and life loses its luster, okay? This is why guys that are, you know, famous businessmen and millionaires and all that, they lose their job and they end up committing suicide. Uh, At Oxford University in England, they have the highest rate of suicide among young people because their students will end up failing And that's where they found their identity. Their identity was in their education, so when they fail out at Oxford, they end up committing suicide. A lot of them, uh, interestingly enough, jump off a roof and impale themselves on Edmund Haley's fence, the guy that discovered Haley's Comet. He has a really sharp fence, and so that's where they will do it there at Oxford. Is your primary identity found in your job? Is it found in your spouse? Your primary identity is found in your spouse. When your spouse is happy, you're happy. When your spouse is sad, you're sad. When your spouse does this, it affects everything else in your life. Is your spouse your God in that sense? Is it found in your sexuality? This is a fascinating thing where when people will identify as having a certain sexual inclination or whatever it is, what they're saying is, this is who I am. This is my identity. Is it found in your kids? 
Now, don't get me wrong. None of these, none of these things that I'm mentioning necessarily, except for, I guess, sexual deviancy, uh, are wrong in and of themselves, right? A spouse is a good thing. A job is a good thing. Kids are a good thing. But are you finding your identity in that? Because if so, you're committing idolatry. Is your identity found in your kids? Is your identity found in how much money you make? Is your identity found in always being the victim? That's how some people find their identity. Their worth isn't found in Christ. Their worth is found in being the one that takes care of all the wounded puppies of the world, and that's where they find their joy. That's where they find their identity. Okay? Is your identity found in your anxiety or your fear? Where when somebody asks you who you are, if they were to reconstruct whoever you are and they say, I need to know all the attributes of you so I can remake you in this cloning machine, would you give them anxiety and fear as one of those things that is essential to who you are? Is it found in your being a uh, guy or gal that has it all together? Some people, instead of finding their identity in Christ, they find their identity in being the good little Christian boy or girl that does it all right and crosses all their T's and dots all their I's, and they don't find their righteousness in Christ. They find their righteousness in them being a quote-unquote good person. Is it found in your appearance or body image where all your thoughts, all your focus, all these kind of things is on you and how you look and what other people think of you? Is it found in your intelligence, okay? I say all these things simply to say you will never have lasting joy, you will never have lasting life unless your identity is found in Christ and in Christ alone. That's it. This is everything. How you see yourself will determine everything else that you do. So union with Christ is about your identity, okay? You do not get to put any other identity adjectives in front of the word Christian, okay? You are not a male Christian or a female Christian. You are not a black Christian or a white Christian. You are not a poor Christian or a rich Christian. You are not a same-sex attracted Christian. So I don't know if you guys know this or not, but there was a conference recently called the Revoice Conference where it was basically saying you can identify as a same-sex attracted Christian, okay? And the problem with that conference was not that it was promoting homosexuality. It would say that practicing homosexuality is sin. The problem with that conference is it was saying you can have your identity in two things. You can have it in Christ and you can have it in your sin-bent temptation. And that's not true. You're not a same-sex attracted Christian. You're just a Christian. You're not an adulterous Christian. You're just a Christian, okay? You don't get to add any other words in front of the word Christian when it comes to identity, okay? When it comes to identity. Yes, you can say you're an Orthodox Christian or a Reformed Christian or something like that, because then you're still finding your identity in the gospel. But you cannot add any other adjectives to where you try to have something in addition to Christ where you find your identity. You with me so far? Coming in hot, starting hot, 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 let's just move on. (laughs) Let's look at some sample passages that talk about being in Christ, okay? Again, these are just a sample. I could use a lot more. I just want you to see how common this idea occurs. First, the Bible says that we were elected in Christ, okay? Notice this. It's not just that God elects you to salvation. He elects you to salvation through Christ. It's only by Christ's death and resurrection. It's only by Christ's perfect life. It's only by your faith in Christ and these kind of things that you have union with Christ. God doesn't just elect you. He elects you because he has also elected Christ, the God-man, okay? Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him. Notice that in Christ idea, in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So notice that you're not just elected, you're elected in Christ. You're only elected because Christ, the elect one, has uh, achieved salvation for you. Now look at this next one. We are seen as being perfectly obedient 
in Christ. Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice that though the phrase in Christ is not used here, the concept is there. It's saying you are either in Adam, which means all the bad stuff Adam does is applied to you, or you are in Christ and all the good stuff Christ does is applied to you. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Notice that, okay? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption you have because you are in Christ. Philippians 3.9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let me pause there real quick just to say this. We have a tendency to think that when we become a Christian, we're really just forgiven of our past sins, right? So we're washed clean of all of the sins that we've done in the past, and now we're kind of neutral, and our job is to then live a good life. That is not biblical. When you come to Christ, not only are you forgiven for all your past sins, you are also seen as being as righteous as Christ. God didn't just make you neutral because then you would still be damned. God demands that you be perfectly righteous. So instead, Christ's righteousness is seen as applying to you. Seen as applying to you, you cannot improve upon Christ's righteousness, okay? You cannot improve upon it. As it's been often said, it's cliche, but it's true. There's nothing you can do that would make God love you less, and there's nothing you can do that would make God love you more. Our sins were paid for in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there's that phrase again, we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So not only do you get Christ's righteousness, but Christ has your sin imputed to him on the cross and he pays for that. Look at this next one. We have already died to sin in Christ. Do you believe that? That we've already died to sin? Not that we're free from its presence, but that we're free from its power. It doesn't own us anymore. That telephone of temptation still rings, but we don't have to pick it up. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Romans 6.6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice that my old self has already been crucified. It's been crucified with Christ. Next, we have a new life and identity in Christ, okay? There is no more you. There is no more you. You have died biblically. There is only you in Christ. There's never you just appearing before God by yourself. There's only you covered in Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that phrase again, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You are dead. Think about what that means to be dead to your old self, okay? Dead people have no more uh, mastery of sin over them. Dead people have no more hopes. Dead people have no more dreams. Dead people don't get to call the shots in their life. None of that's the case for dead people. But instead, Christ now is the one who lives. You died at your conversion, and now Christ is the one living through you. You are in Christ. There is no more Zach. There is no more Carl. There is no more Jeff. Whatever it is, there is just Christ, okay? You have died. Look at this next part. We will be resurrected in Christ. So not only in our current state of salvation and our justification, but also in our final state of salvation. Romans 6, 5, for we have been united with him 
in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay? You with me so far? These are just a few examples. I could have put all the examples here. I'm not going to. It would be very boring, but it's very encouraging. So do that one time. Google in Christ in your Bible app and just see how many times that comes up and read those things and be encouraged. Now, another thing I want you to see is that it's not just that you're in Christ as an individual, but that the church is in Christ. Okay? The church is in Christ. Where was Eve taken from Adam? Shout it out. Ribs. Good. I'm glad you got that right. His knee. You know, uh, yes. Rib. Right? Out of his wounded side comes his bride. In the same way, it's, it's that case with Christ. Out of Christ's wounded side, as it's pierced on the cross, comes his bride, the church. He dies for his bride, the church, and so the church is also seen as being in Christ. The church has no righteousness or authority or anything good apart from Christ either. Okay? Romans 12.5, so we, though many, notice that it's talking about Christians, it's talking about the church, it's talking about something corporate, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now let me comment on that passage real quick. Notice that text doesn't say there is both Jew and Gentile, there is both slave and free, there is both male and female, because it's not trying to emphasize the things that make you different from other Christians. It's that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The Bible is always going to say stop focusing on what makes you unique, focus on what makes you like other Christians, which is Christ. That's always our primary identity. The Bible wants to downplay our other identities and focus on our identity in Christ, okay? John 17, 21, that there may be, I'm sorry, that there, <clears throat> I don't know what's happening today. I didn't have my Red Bull. You can tell. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, Okay. When we talk about the Trinity, one of the things that we talk about in theology is this idea that be, there's only one God, okay? God is one being. He is one God. He is one essence. He only has one mind. He only has one will. There's only one God. Yet somehow this one God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a real distinction between the persons, but that distinction can't come from the nature. It can't come from the substance because there's only one substance. And so when you think of the Trinity, they're all mixed up with one another. It's kind of the idea. They're still distinct, but there's this idea that's used in theology. The, the term is interpenetration. The idea is that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Father's in the Spirit, and the Spirit's in the Son. The Trinity is just one God. And so there's this beautiful uh, love and life and relationship going on in the Trinity. And what this text is saying is that the church, in a sense, gets to be caught up in that, that the church is in the Trinitarian God. Okay? It's a very interesting uh, way to state it, but it's also really cool. 1 Corinthians 12.12. 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Again, being in Christ, being with Christ as the church. Ephesians 2, 13-14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Specifically, this is talking about Jew and Gentile. That in Christ, the things that separate Jew and Gentile, which is this racial distinction, are torn down, and rather now there's union in Christ. That's the focus, 
okay? That's the focus. Beware of those who try to rebuild up that dividing wall of hostility. Your focus is on your union with Christ. Okay, let me give you a few examples. Two analogies of being in Christ and what this means. I've drawn an excellently, uh, you know, uh, sculpted picture here of you. This is what you look like to me. I don't know if you've ever seen this or not. This might not be what you think you look like in the mirror, but this is what you look like to everybody else, okay? So this is you. And this is Jesus over here. Jesus is not a circle. He's the God-man, but let's use this as a metaphor for this illustration. Now, name some things that are true of Jesus. He is God. Yes, I'm not going to put this one on here because that destroys my analogy. Let me be clear about something. When you use an analogy, there's no such thing as a perfect analogy. If there was a perfect analogy, it would be the same thing that you're comparing it to. Does that make sense? And so anytime you use an analogy, some things will fit and some things will not fit. So if I'm like, man, that football player is strong as an ox, I don't mean he has horns and is not human and is an animal. What I mean is it's his strength is what I'm talking about, okay? So not everything will work here. You're like, uh, Jesus is eternal. Well, when you're in Christ, you're eternal. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Okay, give me some other ones. With Christ's status, with Christ's perfection, with the blessings Christ brings. Righteous, excellent. Righteous? What else? There's a lot. What is it? Sinless? Perfect. Sinless? What else? Strong. Strong. I like that. I heard another one over here. What was it? Just. Merciful. I'm going to say love. I'm going to put loved, but yes, as well. He's also loved by the Father. That's good. What else? Perfect. That's a good one. Okay. Compassionate. He's compassionate. I'm going to put comp because I'm running out of room, but that doesn't mean like uh, compensation. Uh, that means uh, compassionate. What else? See, this is the part where it gets awkward if you're listening to this online. <laughs> You don't hear any of it. What is it? I heard something else. His status. What is his status before the Father? Let me say it that way. Any? Huh? Holy. Holy. That's a good one. Holy. Sorry about my handwriting. What else? Justified. He was justified by his resurrection. Justified. Okay, I'll leave that right now. We could fill in a lot of other things, okay? We could fill in a lot of other things. Now, here's us. This is us apart from Christ. Notice we have a frown because of our shame, okay? We have a frown because of our shame. And we're covered in sin. This is going to represent sin. Ugh, gross. We have all this gross sin all over us. Because we have sin, we also have shame. Now, what happens in conversion? When you repent and you trust in Christ, when the Holy Spirit opens your heart, you hear the gospel, the Spirit has given you new life, you repent and you believe in Christ, what happens is you move over into here. And what's true of Christ is true of you. Not that you're the eternal Son of God. We're not talking about His uh, being. What I mean by that is His status. What's true of his status is as the father looks at the son, he's righteous, perfect, spotless, clean, everything good. You, being in Christ, are seen as righteous. Notice, your shame is gone. There's the smiley face. Now, here's how some of you think of it. You think that when you become a Christian, you still have your shame. There's the little frown. And you think, yeah, I'm in Christ, but also I still have all this sin covering me. 
So you have a tendency not to really believe in the union of Christ. You have a tendency to believe that, yes, you're in Christ, but you're in Christ, and you still have all your sin, and you're really still awful, and God's really still got his arms crossed, and he's frustrated and disappointed in you, hoping that one day you will do better. But no, when you're in Christ, all that blue sin that we've got on this analogy goes away, and your shame goes away, okay? I know this is really easy to see with the words going across his face and all those kind of things, but I think you get the point, okay? What the Bible will do is it will contrast these two images. It'll contrast of what it means to be in Adam and what it means to be in Christ, okay? Everybody belongs to one of these two things. If you want to think of uh, humanity as like two nations, there's uh, Adam, the nation of Adam, and then there's Christ, the nation of Christ, and you grow up. You're born into the nation of Adam. You're an Adam citizen from the time that you're born, and all the things that are true of Adam are true of you when it comes to his sin, that you have broken God's law, that you have rebelled, that you are bent towards sin, that you love what's perverse, that you love what's wicked, etc., that you're under uh, God's kicking out of the Garden of Eden. But when you repent and you trust in Christ, you forsake your old allegiance. You get rid of your old citizenship and you have a new identity. You have a new country. You have a new representative, a new ambassador before God who's the man Christ Jesus. And so what happens is that his status is true of you. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you believe that when God sees you, he sees you as perfect as Christ? I don't think most of us actually live that way and believe that. I think when God sees me, he thinks, yeah, I've got to forgive Zach because I'm not a liar and I said that I would. But really, I kind of regret that he became a Christian because he's been a lot of work and he's kind of like one of my problem children. That's how I think God views me, okay? If what I'm saying about union with Christ, though, is true, then what I just said can't be true, okay? that I never appear before God apart from Christ. That to say it another way, the Father never sees me without his Jesus glasses on, okay? I think most of our problems in our Christian walk when it comes to loving God, to feeling loved by God, to trusting God, whatever it might be, is because we're evaluating ourselves apart from Christ. When our head hits the pillow at night, I think through, how did I do today? Well, I I shouldn't have said this, and I said this. I had this bad thought. I wasn't kind to this person. I didn't pray very much today. Uh, God's just kind of frustrated. You no longer have to do that if you understand your union with Christ. Yes, you repent of sin. Yes, you put sin to death. But you do so from a place of knowing that you're loved and holy and accepted and everything's going to be okay. You, so, so, so maybe I need to say it another way. Is there a place in your life where God and you don't agree on you? Is there a place in your life where you're viewing yourself differently than the way God does? You're not allowed to do that because one of you is lying. If your thoughts aren't lining up with God's thoughts, somebody's not thinking the right thoughts. And I guarantee you it's not God. And so, so much of the Christian life is learning what this actually means. So I don't want you to just say, yeah, I've heard of union in Christ. That's something that we've preached at Parkway for at least 25 years. That was Jerry, the the guy who's the pastor here before the transition. That was his big talk. I don't want you to say, okay, I've got it. Yeah, union with Christ. I want you to really wrestle and say, have I put my full identity in Christ to where I know that God is completely in love with me, completely pleased with me, completely happy with me all the time, that my status does not change. That's a big thing to get your mind around, okay? I'll give you another one. Let's do another analogy. I brought my Bible. This is church. For this analogy, I have a little card here. What does this card say? It says you, okay? This is you. As a Christian, assuming that everybody here is a Christian, they might not be, but if you are, this is you, and uh, this is what this is going to represent. So the Bible is going to represent Jesus, okay? 
The uh, inscripturated word is going to represent the incarnate word. I'm going to represent the Father, and the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is a trinity, the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is putting you into Jesus, into the Son, okay? Can you see that card now anymore? You can't. What do you just see? You just see Jesus. If I put you over here on this uh, music stand, where is Jesus on the music stand? Where are you? Also on the music stand. If I take this and I come and I put it over here on this speaker, where is Jesus? On the speaker. Where are you? Also on the speaker. If I take this and I launch it up to the moon in a spaceship, guess where you are? In Christ, on the moon, from the spaceship, okay? If I take this Bible and I light it on fire and I burn it up and the ashes are all mixed together, where are you? With Christ. That's the idea, that there is no more you there is only your identity in Christ. Now, let me be clear what I'm saying and what I'm saying. I'm not saying you are Jesus. Don't worship yourself. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when it comes to your identity, when it comes to your status, when it comes to the way that God views you, you are seen as righteous as Christ is. So there is no more you. There's only you in Christ. You're not Jesus ontologically. You're not him as his being. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is that your status is as perfect as Christ. If I were to ask you how perfect does God see you, your instant response out of your mouth should be, 100% as perfect as anyone can be because it's only Christ's righteousness. That is your identity, okay? That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. Okay, next. Some further thoughts on union with Christ and then some questions that will be really probing and then we'll probably end a few minutes early and I'll have Jeff come up here and, and give his thoughts on union with Christ. Let's give me give you some further thoughts on union with Christ. Number one, stop thinking of yourself and your righteousness by looking at you apart from Christ. Okay? Once you come to know Christ, you've died, you're in Christ from here on out. Okay? But I think what happens a lot of times is we view ourselves, in a sense, apart from Christ. We say, how is Zach doing, or whatever your name is, how is Zach doing in his righteousness? And then what happens is we realize how far we fall short, which leads to either pride or it leads to just depression. What I mean by that is that if I look at myself apart from Christ and I say, how am I doing? I'll come to one of two answers. I'll either say, I'm crushing it. I'm way better than my neighbor who's getting drunk and sleeping around. I'm way better than these people. I am just great and righteous. And that leads to pride, right? The pride and the condemnation of the devil. So that's not a place you want to be. Or what I'll do is if I look at myself apart from Christ, I'll say, okay, how am I doing today? How am I doing with righteousness? Not very good. And then I just get depressed. So your only benefit of some type of works-based salvation, of looking at yourself apart from Christ, is either pride or depression. Not a good option. The better option is the third option, and realize you cannot look at yourself apart from Christ, okay? Again, when the Father looks at you, he only sees you with his Jesus glasses on. You are not allowed to think of yourself in a way that God doesn't think of you. Number two, this one's huge. Christi Christianity is not about trying harder. It is about realizing that it is already done, okay? It's about realizing that it's already done. Christianity is not so much something you do. It's something that you are. Okay? It's something that you are. I have found this. If I try really hard not to sin, guess what I'll end up doing? I'll end up sinning a lot more. Do you know why? Because my focus is still not on Christ. What I've done in that moment is I've made not sinning my Savior instead of Christ. I found that if I just focus on Christ and I just love uh, Christ and my thoughts are about Christ, I naturally don't sin. So I'm not saying don't fight sin. I'm not saying don't take an aggressive stance against sin. I'm saying the only way that you're going to actually succeed as you fight sin is not by focusing on the sin, not by focusing on you, but by focusing on Christ. The enemy doesn't care what you think about as long as it's not Jesus. 
He doesn't care what it is. It can be your own righteousness. It can just be general religion. It can just be general spirituality. He doesn't care what it is. He just wants to make sure that no matter what, that you're not thinking about Christ. That's his goal, okay? So the way that you actually grow in holiness is not by trying harder. It's by realizing that it's already done. I'm already loved. I'm already forgiven. I'm already accepted. And when I understand that, I feel God's love, and I just naturally want to be kind to people. I just naturally want to read the scriptures. I just naturally want to do that. If you feel far from God, you have a theological problem. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We love him because he first loved us. So the way that you'll grow in your love for God is not by trying to love him more. It's by going back to how much he loves you always. That's always the starting point. Christianity is not, I do these things and God loves me. It's God loves me, period. Now I naturally do these things, okay? Number three, you don't grow in holiness by trying harder, again. You grow in holiness by remembering that you are already perfect in Christ. There is a big difference between working for acceptance and working from acceptance, okay? One of those is fear-based. One of those is love-based. One of those is you trying to, to do it all, you trying to earn this acceptance from God. The other is you walking out this acceptance you've already been given, okay? One of the things that it was said that Martin Luther, the uh, great German Protestant reformer, would do is at the beginning of his day, he would start by saying, I'm accepted. And then he would do everything else he needs to do, like completely destroy the Roman Catholic Church or whatever it is, okay? But that's the idea. In the same way, so I, I think this is fascinating, in the same way that Jesus, when he comes out of the water of his baptism, you see this great Trinitarian illustration where you have the Father speaking from heaven, you have uh, the Son, you have then the Spirit who lights on him like a dove. And what specifically does God say to Jesus? You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus has done his ministry stuff, before Jesus has been obedient to the point of death on a cross, before Jesus has uh, been resurrected, before Jesus uh, has to go through the awful pain of the crucifixion, already you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You have to hear, let me say this really strongly, each morning you need to get up and you need to hear God say that to you before you begin your day that you're my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased, and you live out of that acceptance. You live out of that love, not to earn it, but because you already have it, okay? Number four, this means you don't have to constantly evaluate how you and God are doing, okay? Now, let me explain what I do and don't mean by that. I don't mean that you shouldn't look and see if there's sin in your life, okay? You are to put sin to death. The Bible's clear. Jesus teaches us that when we're to pray, we pray, uh, forgive us our debts. Notice, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We're to pray that constantly, according to Jesus, even though there's a sense in which ultimately we're already forgiven. We are to put sin to death. We are to fight sin. What I mean, though, by this is that your status with God never changes. Katie and I may get into a fight. We may have a season where we're not doing well, but our marriage, the fact that we're married, does not change. In the same way, you will go through different seasons in your Christian walk where you're more or less walking in righteousness, where you're more or less walking in obedience, but you need to know that God's marriage to you doesn't change, okay? God does not divorce his bride. Number five, this means that God's love for you is always the same even when you struggle with sin. Now, let, let me explain it this way. God is the only being in the universe that can really love you unconditionally. Do you know why? It's because he doesn't need anything from you. All of our love for other people, because we need stuff, we like to think it's unconditional, but really it's somewhat conditional. So I like to think my love for my wife is unconditional, but if she cheated on me every day, that love would start to dwindle, right? I like to think my love for my kids is unconditional, but if they tried to murder each other with knives every day, my love would change because I need things, right? I get mad, I get snippy with them, I get annoyed or whatever it is because I'm fallible, I'm finite, I'm human. 
My love by nature cannot be infinite. It cannot be unconditional fully like that. Okay? Because God doesn't need anything from you, because he, because he has aseity, he doesn't need anything from you, he is free just to love you completely no matter what you do. He doesn't need anything from you. You can't annoy him or something like this. Okay? He loves you just because his love is based on him. God's love is based on God. God doesn't just love you because you're just so great. God loves you because he just says, I'm going to decide to put my love on you, knowing all the bad things you're going to do. All your sins were future when, died, when Jesus died on the cross, okay? And yet God pours out his love. God is unchanging, therefore his love for you is unchanging, okay? God is impassable. You don't give God good days and bad days. God's love for you just shines on you consistently and continually, and he's doing great all the time, Okay? You see, if God's love for you is based on you, then he'll love you some days less and some days more. But if God's love for you is based on Christ, who has been perfect, then therefore God's love for you doesn't change. Number six, this means that you have to practice renewing your mind in Christ and taking thoughts captive. When somebody says you need to take thoughts captive, typically what kind of thoughts are you thinking when they say that? What kind of sin? Lust, that's the most common one, yes. So typically, if I've been counseling, for example, young men, and I say you need to take thoughts captive, 99% of the time I'm saying you need to stop thinking of that scandalous lady that pops in your head, okay? Now, you need to realize, though, that you're to take thoughts captive, not just lustful thoughts. You're to take any thoughts captive that are not biblical thoughts, that do not submit themselves to Christ, okay? That doesn't mean you can't think of cars because they're not in the Bible. What I mean is you need to take thoughts captive that are unbiblical. Not being in the Bible and being unbiblical are different things, okay? So when you have this thought that you, where you see yourself as kind of dirty, you see yourself as a Christian with an asterisk, you see yourself as, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm a divorced Christian, or I'm a Christian who's committed adultery in the past, or I'm a Christian who lived wildly in college, or I'm a Christian, yes, but with an asterisk, and if you go to the bottom of the, the salvation contract by the asterisk, it says, yeah, God loves me because he has to, because he's faithful, but really, I'm kind of an awful person. That has to go away, okay? Those are the thoughts that you have to take captive. Most of the thoughts I have to take captive are thoughts of anxiety, Thoughts of God being mad at me. Thoughts of God condemning me. When that thought pops into your head, how could you do this if you're really a Christian? If, if you really loved Christ, why would you even think that? If you, uh, you know, why would you have this doubt if you really love Jesus? Why would you still struggle with this sin if you really love Jesus? Maybe you're not a Christian. You're the only one who's faking it in church. You're a phony. Christianity is easy for everybody else, but it's not easy for you. All those kind of lies... You have to stop and you have to take them captive, which means this. You recognize that the thought is a lie, and instead you remind yourself of the gospel. That thought's not true. Zach, how do you know you're a Christian? I don't have to know if I'm a Christian. I love Christ and I'm in Christ and he's perfect. Zach, how do you even, if you're still a Christian, why would you still be struggling with these sins? Well, my righteousness isn't found in me, so how much I struggle doesn't matter. My righteousness is found in Christ. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to preach the gospel to yourself. When those evil condemning thoughts pop into your mind, you have to take those captive. You have to say, I, I recognize that that's false. I'm not going to think about it. And I'm going to replace it with a true thought, with a biblical thought. Okay? Or sometimes you just have to distract yourself. I've found that a lot of times when I hear these kind of condemning thoughts, I don't mean uh, audibly, I'm not crazy, but when I hear these kind of condemning thoughts in my mind, sometimes the most helpful thing to do is just not even to do something really spiritual and religious, but just not acknowledge them. Go do something else. Go have a conversation with somebody, read something, go back to work, whatever it might be. Okay? Now, let me give you a few things, questions, to discover where you might be finding your identity other than Christ, okay? 
There are 11 of these that I'm going to go through. So these ones, are, uh, these ones are good ones. These are good convicting questions. So let these questions hit you. Don't guard yourself. The more you realize you're in Christ, the more you don't have to be the hero of your life. The more you don't have to hold it all together. You're free to be awful and just be loved instead of trying so hard not to be awful. Do you get that? Being a Christian means you're awful and you're loved, not that you have to try hard not to be awful. Those are very different. So let me give you a few of these. One, this will tell you what your identity is in. And by the way, whatever your identity is in, that is an idol if it's not Christ. What do you think about the most during the day? What do you think about the most during the day? Are you worried about finances, worried about kids? By that, by the way, I, I don't just mean that, yes, you're at your job, so you're thinking about your job. That's not idolatry. What I mean is those when you're by yourself, kind of those thoughts, where, where do your thoughts go to at the end of a long day or when you're by yourself? What are those worries that you worry about the most? Number two, what do you most want others to know about you? What do you most want others to know about you? You're just hoping someone will ask you that specific question so you can be like, I have a million dollars, or whatever it is. That you just, you're wanting them to bring it up. This is why, by the way, I love creating resumes because it's like the only socially acceptable time to just boast, right? I've done this job, and this, it's, it's a weird thing, okay? What do you want others to most know about you? Number three, what about yourself are you afraid of others finding out? What is that thing about you where if other people knew this about you, it would just wreck you. It would just destroy your life. That would be the scariest, most awful thing. What about yourself? Are you afraid of others finding out? Number four, if you could change something about yourself, what would it be? If you could change something about yourself, I mainly mean like your character or something. I don't mean, uh, you know, I wish I had more hair or whatever it is. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? When you think about how you and God are doing, where do you beat yourself up? Where are those areas where you feel like you don't do well? Where might you be finding your identity in those failures? Okay. Number six, what are you most afraid of? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's that phone call that you could get and it would destroy your life and life would not be worth living anymore? What are you most afraid of? Number seven is a great one. Whose approval are you seeking? Are you seeking your own approval? Are you seeking a spouse's approval? Are you seeking a boss's approval? Are you seeking a parent's approval? Where you felt like you never had your dad's approval when you were six or whatever, and you've been spending your entire life trying to make up for it. Whose approval are you seeking other than God's? Number eight, what comfort do you run to after a difficult day? You've had a terrible day. You've had a really long day. You get home. What is the thing that most makes you feel better? What is the thing that you run to after a long, difficult day? Number nine, if you had one wish, what would it be? It can't be for more wishes, okay? But if you had one wish, what would it be? I wish this was different in my life. What would that one wish be? Number 10, what do you sacrifice for? Or to say that cor correctly grammatically, for what do you sacrifice? What do you sacrifice for? Okay. What do you sacrifice for? What are you willing to give up certain things to get? Whatever you hold in high esteem, i.e., by the way, that's your God. Whatever you hold in high esteem, whatever idol you've made, you're willing to sacrifice for your idols. Okay? That's what worship is. Worship involves sacrifice. And so you will sacrifice for those things. 
A guy who really loves his mistress will sacrifice his marriage for that goddess of his mistress. Number 11, on what issue are you upset with God? On what issue are you upset with God? Where has he given you the short end of the stick? Where do you feel like he's been gracious to everybody else but not to you? In this one area, you really just, he, he wasn't gracious. He's been gracious in other areas, but it just seems like in this one area, he just, just kind of dropped the ball. I thought he was going to give me something really good, but he gave me something that's kind of subpar that I don't really like. Where has God given you the short end of the stick? On what issues are you upset with God? Now, by the way, I asked these questions in this lesson with uh, the union of Christ. These are the exact same questions that I ask when I teach on idolatry because these things are united, okay? We have a tendency to think of idols as these metal statues that we have to physically bow down and worship. Most of our idols today, though, are not metal. They are mental. An idol is whatever you are loving more than God. It is whatever you are putting in that pedestal in your life other than God. That's what an idol is, okay? These questions help you find out what your idol is because, by the way, your idol and your identity will be linked. Whatever you worship, that's how you'll see yourself, okay? If you worship Christ, you see yourself as in Christ. But if you worship anything else, you find your identity in that other thing. You will try to be like whatever you think is the best, okay? Whatever you think is the best. Jeffrey, come up here and talk to us about union with Christ, and we'll take some questions.